Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the Dutch cultural psychologist, Batya Gomez de Mesquita, author of the new book, Between Us, How Culture Creates Emotions. Batya is the director of the Center for Social and Cultural Psychology at the University of Leuven in Belgium, where she studies the role of culture and emotions and of emotions in societies around the world. Before we get into the episode, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, a company deeply connected to nature that brings an incredible level of craft and detail to every watch it creates. From its founding in 1960, Grand Seiko has sought to create the world's most durable and beautiful watches with the highest degree of accuracy and legibility possible. They're really the ultimate in practical watchmaking. For one of its latest watches, the SBGJ259, a special edition exclusive to the U.S. and shipping this fall, Grand Seiko turned to the verdant bamboo forest in northern Japan. The dial of the watch features a dramatic striated pattern that oscillates between different tones of green, evoking the vertical lines and organic coloration of the bamboo. With a GMT function that allows its wearers to track an additional time zone, it's an ideal timepiece for frequent travelers. To learn more about the SBGJ259 and Grand Seiko's other distinctive timepieces, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now, here's our conversation with Batya. Hi, Batya. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to have you. And to be here, I mean, sorry to ask you. I'll get there. <laughs> so... You've just published this new book, Between Us, How Culture Creates Emotions, which looks at how emotions are not innate. They're these constructions we inherit from our surroundings and cultures. And I was wondering, just to start, what compelled you to write this book? Well, several things. A lot of psychology is built on this idea that we have innate Emotions, not only that they're innate, I mean, obviously there's something innate about emotions because we all have bodies, right? But a lot of psychology actually assumes that emotions are innate like we Westerners have them. And that would be a real coincidence given that, you know, non-Westerners talk about their emotions differently, recognize different emotions, have emotions in a different way, conceptualize emotions differently. So I think I'm driven by the need to correct that and to make sure that we are aware that emotions come in many different shapes, especially in our globalized world and our multicultural society that seems worth a book. And there's so much of this to do with language, which we'll get into it in a bit. But knowing what you know now, do you think that there are some core basic emotions that all humans share? I don't think they're core basic emotions, but I do believe that we all come with brains and that we all come with bodies. And I do believe that people in all cultures have relationships with their environment and with other people. And I think those facts make a lot of our functioning 
comparable, understandable across cultures. And to some extent, you can't do anything that your body can't do, or you can't feel anything that your body can't feel. So there's certainly a constraint on what cultures can make. But having said that, people in different cultures have very different emotions, yes. You were raised in the Netherlands, and you describe in your book that you were this psychologically-minded kid. So I wanted you to expand on that a little bit and also maybe help us understand what inspired your interest in human emotion, which you've dedicated your whole adult life to. Yeah. After the fact, it's always guessing, right? I don't know. I started psychology. There was this professor who was interested in emotion. And so I got to study emotions with him. But another way of looking at it is that I've been interested in emotions my whole life because I was the daughter of Holocaust survivors. My parents spent their childhood in or part of their childhood in hiding, which I think was pretty common for Jewish kids at that time in anywhere in Western Europe. There was always some unpeeling to do or some work to do for me to understand my parents' responses to to important things, but sometimes to not so important things. So my parents could explode at something that I didn't understand why you would explode on, or they could be very anxious, and I didn't know where it came from. In retrospect, I think I was always trying to discover what about my parents made them respond that way, and how their lives also were different from my life, and how their experiences were rooted in those former experiences as well as the life that we shared together. So I think that might have something to do with it. Would I have been less psychologically minded had I not had those parents? I don't know. We didn't do that experiment, but. Right, but you had this intimate perspective on a kind of heightened sense of emotional response because of this immense force put on your parents and they were an outgrowth of that time. I mean, your family was somehow connected to Anne Frank for people that know that story. My dad was a classmate of Anne Frank. So, and that was not a total coincidence because of course, when the Germans occupied the Netherlands, they wanted all Jewish kids to go to the same high school. They started segregating. And so my dad happened to be of the same age as Anne Frank and was in her environment. So it was a completely different time the relationships between people were completely different. Their family relationships, of course, were changed by this experience. And my dad in his puberty stayed in hiding, in, you know, in very cramped quarters with his parents. So that shapes you. My mom actually didn't have a classmate as important, but she had a book written about her herself, which is the cut out girl. But my mom was cut out of her environment and went into hiding and then came out of the war as an orphan. So yes, these were heightened emotions because there were completely different circumstances, completely different relationships than I experienced in my comfortable middle-class post-war childhoods with two loving parents. Who had experienced a lot of trauma. I mean, I started to disrupt, but this idea about a specific trauma like that, that's so severe, that develops a, a pathway towards emotion or triggers in different, whether it's a certain kind of food on the table or, or a certain noise on the street. Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting about that is that people will believe that an emotional life is completely changed 
with an experience like trauma, but somehow in our Western thinking, it's much harder to believe that emotions, not in the same ways, but also in different ways would be shaped by structurally different patterns of relationships, different institutions. And I would argue it's similar in the sense that it's not the same emotions that it produces, but that what we experience, what we come to predict about our environment, how we make meaning in our environment, shapes how we expect other people to uh, respond, shapes how we come to feel, shapes how we perceive our emotions, but also shapes how we come to feel, experience, act. So I think in a way it's interesting because I think psychology has come a long way understanding that people with trauma come out changed, but somehow it has been harder for Western psychologists to believe that when people grow up and live in these completely different environments, that emotions will come out differently too. And that's what I argue and I think show evidence for in the book. We're curious, are there certain emotions that some languages have and others just don't define the same way or don't even have words for? Yes, but I'm going to go one step back (laughs) because I am looking at words, but I'm saying specifically that words are not related to things in your head. And so what I'm saying is, yes, we have those words in our cultures and what these words do is categorize a number of experiences that in our culture we see as similar, right? So we have a word for anger. We think that's very different than sad, which means that the instances of sadness, that we see them as very separate from the instances of anger. Now, the first thing to say is not all cultures have those same definitions or have those same boundaries around certain areas of the emotional domain. So some cultures have a word of anger that's much closer to sadness. What you can say is not so much that, look, we all have those emotions, except some cultures have labels for them and other cultures have not. But we organize our experiences in a different way, which doesn't only mean that There are emotions, but we put different labels on it. No, we actually have different experiences because we perceive those events as something. So, for example, the Japanese have a word that's really used a lot. It's called amai. I don't even know if I pronounce it well. And it's something like relying on somebody else that they will take loving care of you. A friend of mine once said, it's like in romantic love, sometimes you want to be babied, something like that. The prototypical instance of that is a mother taking care of their young children. But it also happens in all close relationships. And when you do it, you assume this is actually, it's it's a complex emotion because it assumes that the relationship is good. It's good enough that you can rely on it. You also assume that you don't really have to control so much what you're asking for. This other person is going to take care of you. But the other person also doesn't mind it because it is this part of a close relationship. Now, do we have that? I would argue not in the same way. Can we never recognize something that we have in a relationship as am I? We could probably think of an instance or two that could be described with am I. 
But the Japanese are really surprised when you tell them that this is not a basic emotions because everybody has a mind. Now, why didn't that emotion show up in the five or so or six or nine emotions that we thought of as basic? Well, I would argue because it's not the kind of experience that we highlight in our culture. And here I come back to, you know, how different or how similar are we? Can we imagine a close relationship where we have a relationship like that and where we have a feeling like that. I call it in a book like falling backwards and hoping that somebody will catch you. Yeah, there are moments that we can classify as that. Are we constantly seeing it in every relationship? No, we don't. Do we know all the connotations that it has for the relationship? No, we don't. And in fact, when uh, psychologists studied that emotion in North America, North Americans can, I should say, US students, American students can recognize certain instances, like you ask your friend at a very inconvenient moment if you can sleep on his couch. Would they prefer that over you not asking and, and asking another friend? No, because it's a sign of friendship, right? But when American students think about those instances, they think that the person who gives the MI, who is the caregiver, has control. Japanese don't think about it in that way. They think about it in terms of a relatedness. Is it the same emotion? Well, it, arguably, it has some of the same elements, but is it the same emotion? I mean, but it gets culturally complicated because we have things in the US like self actualization and a sense of agency and this pride about self that's different. Right, I would say so. And it's not that we never have a moment where we are not realizing our self-agency, and we can certainly recognize it, but our emotional life is geared more towards self of agency, control, mastering the world, being independent in your relationship, being autonomous. So I think it becomes tricky when you say, is it the same? It can be the same, but it's not the same culturally, and it's certainly not the repertoire that people derive their emotions from, if that's, I mean, that's a metaphoric way. Of You're talking about one small element of this umbrella of love or... Right. So it gets even crazier when you start thinking about the array of definitions of love related to culture. It does. And I think for us, it's also good to remember that when we say love, I love you, you know, love is love an emotion is love one emotion. I mean, if I asked people out on the street, they would say love is an emotion, right? Because you can feel it. But then when you think about it, it's not a feeling that always is the same. Like we tend to in our culture, we tend to think about it as you lift the skull and there it is, love. And it's, you know, it's either activated or it's completely dull and then you need to move on to a different relationship, right? Now, I don't think we use love in the same way. We don't, we would not pretend that love for your partner is feels the same or, or means the same from one moment to the next. It doesn't mean the same when they're sick or um, need your help or when they're shining and have your admiration. It's just not the same feeling. Certainly love for your child isn't the same for your partner and love for a friend is something completely different. So I don't even think that when we're, when we think about it more deeply about what a feeling is and how we use it, we can't say that even in our culture, there's one thing that we call love. It's a collection of feelings and interactions. 
And interactions very importantly, also where another person does something back, right? When I love you and you say, uh, you don't love me back, the feeling instantly becomes a very different one. We do a lot of those things in the relationships, right? I get angry at my partner. It's a very different emotions when he says, sorry, or when he says, you angry? I mean, I am the one who should be angry. The feeling and the whole episode changes instantly. It's interesting in this context to consider that the word emotion itself doesn't exist in all languages. Like not all languages have a word for that. So I wanted to ask how you dealt with that. How did you keep that in mind while doing this work about that very subject? There are two answers to that. You know, in the book, I deal with it by saying, okay, whether or not people call it emotions, in all cultures, we have responses to things that are really important to us positive or negative, but that are really important. And that usually implicates the body or some changes in the body. And that usually call for some action, like an action to be closer. Or if I love something or someone, I want to be closer. I make sure that that person is okay. It calls for action. If something is scary, I make sure that I don't get exposed to it. So that's how I deal with the book. I say, I'm not defining it. I'm not saying this is the thing, but these are the kinds of phenomena that we talk about. And of course, in every culture, there are things that are positively and negatively relevant, so to say, and that move people. The other way for me, and that's a more methodological way, is that I never do research on emotions in general. I do research on an on a particular part of the emotion domain. And that's true for most psychologists and most anthropologists and sociologists. You focus on a certain domain of emotions. For example, I've done research about what happens when people feel offended or when they're praised or feel valued, or when you can even start from an emotion word and you can say, what does it mean to be angry in your culture? And what does it mean to be the translation of that. Or you can show a face and say, what would you project on that face? So there are ways I'm not defining it. I'm pretty sure we're not talking about one mechanism. It's interesting, of course, that in some cultures, emotions are a separate category. In other cultures, they're not separated from, say, physical uh, sensations or from, from things like pain and hunger. There are also cultures in which um, they don't really have a separate word for the domain of emotion and what in psychology would, would call the domain of cognition. So what, you know, things, beliefs, for example, or attitudes. And it probably tells us that the divisions are pretty arbitrary, you know, that the divisions are men, human made. Let me say it in a more progressive way. In an effort to quantify and to understand and to like fully control in a way. The word emotion, as we have it, I think is no older than the 19th century in English. Before that, there were words that were much less clear in, in disentangling or separating the subjective and the, the bodily sensations. And in general, what philosophers, historians, and, and the likes have described is that that we have become increasingly in 
the more independent or the more individualistic our culture, the more we're interested in our subjective feelings, but also beliefs. And one way to understand that is that in many historical cultures, but also in many cultures other than Western cultures, there are very strong social structures that tell you how to behave, what to do, what to feel, and that are determined by your role, by social obligations, by the things that you do in your stage of life, by your position in the church or the church that you're part of. In modern life, we have fewer and fewer of those prescriptive norms. And so one way to understand our interest in subjectivity is that we're actually left to our own devices to decide what we like, what we would like to do, what ice cream we would like, what we would like to eat, who we would like to marry. I mean, all things that didn't need to be decided by an individual in the past because there was only one thing to eat. Your family decided to whom you were going to marry and you took the business of your family. And what we look at in large part for those decisions are our own emotions. What you see in other cultures is that emotions are much more regulated or had. I don't like the word regulate because it looks like we first have a natural emotion, then we regulate it. I think we all regulate emotions, but people have more emotions that are required by the situation. So when somebody died, you're just supposed to cry and be there and do your morning ritual. What are we supposed to do anymore when somebody dies? We don't know, right? Some religions have prescriptions. but So I think in that way, a lot of the decisions that were left to the social, what I call the social structure, are now put in the court of the individual. Part of what individuals have to act by is their own preferences and emotions. And I think in cultures that emphasize that, people are much more focused on their internal emotions. It strikes me that a lot of this work is in a way a sort of act of translation, that you are doing translation work here. And, and you argue that only by accepting that emotions are culturally specific can we truly understand the people with whom we're sharing this planet and so I wanted to ask, do you see this as a profound way to help bring people together, this act of translation, and not just collectively, but on an individual to individual basis as well? I think so. I think it's much more helpful to be open to the fact that we could have emotions differently than to suppose that we know already what somebody is feeling. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, psychologists are as guilty of that as lawyers. We seem to know that if somebody doesn't have repent or doesn't feel guilty, what that means that there is something wrong. Do we really? We seem to know that if somebody is ashamed, that they recognize themselves, that they have some bad qualities. Do we really? We seem to know that when parents don't praise their kids when when raising kids, that that's not a good way of raising kids. You know, again, I think for all of the examples that I mentioned, what I find is that there are very different ways of doing emotions in other cultures that in those cultures has good meaning. So just for an example, in lots of cultures, praising your kids is actually 
raises them to be no good. It makes them settled in the ways it makes them boast about themselves, not modest enough, not know their position. So what parents do, what good proper parents do is shame them, make sure that their children feel shame. Now I have heard more than one contemporary developmental psychologist pronounce that that's not a good way of treating your children. Says whom, I say. So I think, yes, I think both in the profession, but also between people that that it is a way of bringing people together. It doesn't sound, I sound more striving than I am. I really think that being open and trying to find out why people do it, assuming that people have the best interests of their kids in mind, what does it mean that they shame their kids? Well, in many cultures, actually, it means that they show their kids to be a proper person in the world. So just to come back to your question, yes, I think the world would be a better place if we were curious about each other's emotions, if we tried to understand how those emotions are tied to, to the cultures to which they refer in my book, I have a lot of examples, school examples of teachers who assume they understand the, the emotional responses of their culturally different pupils. Well, it turns out that if, if those teachers take even a few minutes to talk to those kids rather than to just respond, that that makes a big difference in how those kids are treated, how they feel, their sense of belonging, and even their school trajectory. So, yes, I think... Understanding differences in emotion, or at least acknowledging differences and being humble about what we can understand about each other and trying to find out is essential if we want to bridge the gap that is there. So connected to that, we're living in this moment where there's this kind of plethora of platforms to express your emotions, right? That's what social media essentially is. And one's inner emotional life can be broadcast super widely, easily, all the time. In what ways do you think these technologies have changed the way we understand our own emotions and possibly have shifted the way that we, that we impose a need to feel a certain way about something because of what we're being modeled? I will say right away that I'm not an expert on social media, but what I can imagine is that what happens in a culture is that because we all confirm each other in a certain way of having emotions, that you can think that this is the only way. We have come so far that we actually think that the emotions that we in the West have are the only possible natural emotions, right? So I think social media, if anything, amplify that, amplify this feeling because you don't, I mean, the groups, we know that the groups are very homogenous. So there is a tendency to only see people who respond to events in the way that you do. It's also not a platform. Usually it's not a platform where you ask, how do you mean and what does it mean exactly for you, right? It's applauding, liking, or, or dismissing, and that's the language. Is there a way around that? I mean, I'm not talking about the way social media are set up to amplify certain opinions, but is there a way to go around that as an individual using social media? Probably. And more what I mean is, 
because social media is now the global town square in a way, or the many connected town squares, you have a world where these cultures are dissolving. The cultural forces on emotion are going to eventually dissolve on some level because the shared emotional space is global. To think positively in a way, is this a pharmacon? Is this the sort of poison that will heal and draw together emotions broadly and globally because we're going to be seeing so many and exposed to so many. It's hopeful, but I'm asking. Well, it's, <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to share your hope. Hope is a moral obligation, right? Exactly. I mean, that's one model. As, as I said, I'm not a, a social media expert, but if the United States itself is a model for what happens in the world, it's not that everybody talks to everybody, but it's actually pretty segregating. And so I would say that even in that model where likes find likes, that you could try to go beyond that and bridge the gap. I don't know how realistic it is, but it is hopeful as well. Given what has happened in the United States, and I think on the Western world stage, I'm not so optimistic that if everybody is exposed to everybody in social media, that we will have one big culture, because that's not what the, what the current political landscape looks like. Political and emotional landscape looks like. The algorithm needs to change. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll vote for that. So just to finish and looking forward, what is exciting you the most about your findings? And, and what are your kind of big picture, to use that word again, hope? Uh, what are your big picture hopes for the future of this research? Yeah, my big picture hope is that we will find a way to talk to each other through our emotions by using those emotions as signals of what is important to another person or messages of what is important to me. After all, you know, I have emotions about things that are important to me. So I think that rather than assuming that I know your emotions because I have them too, we can use those emotions as moments, as junctures where we can find out about each other and where we can try to find out what we're about and what our what our goals are, what our hopes are, what our fears are, and to talk about that and to find a way in which we can connect and bridge those, the different origins that we're from, but to converge. Is that big enough picture? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you. It was really fun to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer Grand Seiko, which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at www.grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.